Hello and welcome to the Week in Review. Um, I'm apologetic to the Bournebrook purists out there who expect uh, the free usual panellists and the free usual topics being raised. But as with last week where we uh, shifted proceedings, we're doing so this week. But I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear that alongside myself, Michael Curzon and SD Wicket, we're joined by Collingwood, um, who I think you've got a bit of a reputation now on social media, Collingwood, as of being a, a good um, a good authority figure on the subject we'll be discussing today, um, at least because you you follow the right um, the right reporters on this, people who are uh, sort of on the ground, understanding what's going on, and who also have more of an understanding of history of the area and the, the people involved than especially most British politicians seem to. So thanks for joining us today. That's a pleasure. I'm, I'm not sure the bar is too high if uh, it's more knowledgeable <laughs> no. than British politicians. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We joked about that last time. It's, it sounded a bit more like an insult when I said it, but it, it was lending <laughs> with faith. No, but Ben Wallace has made it so much better now. I mean. Yeah, well, that's true. Ben Wallace has. I saw that Pelosi as well um, mixed up uh, in a speech earlier today and was referring to um, the neighbours of Hungary when I think she meant Ukraine. Um, which is just really? the latest. Uh, um, Michael, I, I sincerely hope we aren't going to skirt past my weather report. I was really trying to skirt past the weather. I know it's quite exciting weather today, given there's been hail and such, but I was, I was really hoping that we wouldn't. But here we are. We've landed on the, uh, the regular uh, SD Wicket weather instalment, so far away. Uh, no, it's gone. Good. <laughs> Listeners have been saved. Um, now, we were sort of talking before this that we're um well it's a bit of a, a miserable day isn't it it's uh, hardly anything to be pleased about in the news we've been talking for weeks now or has it been months i don't know it's been certainly at least a month about of an month, yeah. invasion um of ukraine which uh has landed now um and events are moving very very quickly collingwood you've been sharing a lot of footage on on social media of um sort of destroyed tanks along roadsides uh increasing reports of of russian forces being closer and closer to kiev if not already uh, at least above it um how quickly do you think that this invasion will sort of go on and what do you think the the result of it will be say in a, in a few days time well yeah i think the first thing to say about it is that any war uh, especially of this sort, which is a kind of high-intensity combined arms warfare mm. involving significant tonnage of armor and huge amounts of missile, artillery, and rocket attack is always a tragedy. And what's going on in Ukraine now is a tragedy. Um, my general impression before this had happened was that if Russia didn't receive any concessions or any serious offers of negotiation that the war would likely happen, and if it did, it would be a, a full-spectrum war uh, on multiple fronts across the country, and unfortunately, those worst fears have been uh, realised. Um, as far as how the war will go, it seems to me extremely unlikely that the Ukrainian armed forces will be able to hold out for long. It's likely that they will inflict some losses on the Russian side, which is already happening, but nowhere near enough to survive. Um, defenses across three different fronts are by necessity thin, and Russia already has a significant superiority in 
air, armor, artillery, rockets, missiles, uh, electromagnetic warfare. And therefore, it seems extremely unlikely to me that Ukraine has much of a chance at all. Um, early reports suggest that the southern front uh, from Crimea, uh, going moving up north from Crimea, has already collapsed, and the Russian forces of have secured some bridges across the Dnieper uh, River, which is the river that runs north to south through the middle of Ukraine. Um, I believe I'm right in saying that uh, progress from the north toward Kiev from Belarus and from the east uh, from Belgorod towards uh, Kharkiv or Kharkov, depending if you're Russian or Ukrainian, uh, has also been somewhat slower. But um, it, it seems to me that it won't be long before the entire front folds um, and this tragedy um, reaches a denouement, I suppose. Mm. Um, now I get the impression, or maybe it's just from our own publishing, but um, I certainly think that a lot of Bournebrook readers, uh, their sort of primary interest in all this is what Britain does. And we've seen a number of uh, pronouncements um, across Europe, really, which have been fairly similar, perhaps purposely so. Um, with Boris Johnson saying earlier today that, uh, in his words, our mission is clear diplomatically, politically, economically, and eventually militarily, the hideous and, um, and barbaric adventure of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. And militarily, what do we think that means? Do we think that's him suggesting um, that British armed forces could end up being um, sent over to Ukraine to fight against Russia? Or is that too much of a reading? Well, it's, it's, I think, first of all, it's him being deluded as to Britain's military capabilities. Right. Um, the, the British army has been carved up um, in the last you know, 10, 15 years, and especially under his tenure. Um, I simply don't think we even have the means to go toe to toe with a country like Russia anymore for a number of reasons. One, militarily, you know, our, our fighting uh, forces are diminished significantly uh, technologically as well, but also in terms of like, our national spirits. Um, the the most obvious, obvious difference right now between a country like Russia and countries like the US and the UK is that they have the Russians have more of a sort of a, a warrior like spirit. Um, there, it's it's you know right now it's it's possibly a more um, masculine war like culture, whereas you know moves have been made in the last several years to um, sort of. Uh, liberalize the armed forces in you know most nato countries and that's only going to work to our detriment um and you can even compare it with you know the the sort of the the, the various defense ministers involved in this situation um in every in every field i see russians have the advantage mm. what do you think collingwood do you think that uh that the the door has been open to britain becoming more involved and what do you think the consequence of that would be I doubt that. I suspect what he's referring to is the idea, which I also think is somewhat deluded, that Ukraine can mount a guerrilla campaign or an insurgency uh, once its regular military has been defeated, which, again, I think is deluded. If you look through history at the successful guerrilla and insurgency campaigns, um, they tend to be in societies, first of all, with high birth rates, um, and secondly, um, that are suited to that sort of uh, campaign. So, for instance, in the Second World War, uh, Marshal Tito's partisans 
in the era that used to be known as Yugoslavia, um, had a huge amount of success against the Nazis. Uh, more recently in Afghanistan in the 1980s and again in the 2000s. Uh, again, it was a mountainous uh, country uh, with a significant, uh, very high birth rate. So mm. Ukraine has neither of those things. The east of the country especially is pan-flat. It's ideal for um, uh, combined arms, tank thrusts deep into the strategic space. It is useless for any kind of insurgency. So I suspect that's the sort of thing that Boris Johnson meant. If if it, indeed it is, it would seem to me to come directly from the same fantasy as David Cameron uh, pulled the moderate Syrian opposition from. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's just not something that can happen. And I don't think it's something that we should encourage either. Insurgencies against modern uh, militaries take huge losses, much greater than the militaries that are occupying the country. Um, Israel, for example, seeks, I think, to inflict a uh, 10 or 20 to 1 uh, loss ratio on its insurgents. So let us hope that war is always moral, war is always a crime, but the least... <laughs> The, the least immoral way is that this is over very quickly. Mm. Um, and and, and the, the geography lends itself to that somewhat. I mean, because Kiev, as far as Ukrainian defense goes, it's quite um, unfortunately placed. It's very yeah. close to the borders of Russia and Belarus. Um, yeah. And I, be, I believe Russian troops are now have taken over uh, Antonov Airport, which is not too far from Kiev at all. Yeah, it's about um, 15 miles from the yeah, center and, of Kiev. So. I, I, think, I think you tweeted out, Colin, there, there's a remarkable footage of a news reporter on mm. the ground, literally about 20 feet from... from well, Russia. they'd let him be there. That yeah. He'd talk to the officer, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. Um, now, of course... It, the only it, sort of uh, militaristic response from Britain isn't the only one that could be expected. The one that we've already heard be announced is an increase in sanctions, which itself, um, they're less obviously, I suppose, for most people, but itself um, would be and is uh, to be damaging to Britain and its interests. What sort of fallout could we see as a result of such sanctions, given our attachment to the uh, European economy, to Russia's economy to an extent as well? Um, I, I think it's something which we've jumped to very quickly because it's quite easy to, to call for sanctions and, and sounds good. Um, but uh, one, you've got to question the impact it has on Russia, which actually quite a few uh, British politicians have, but almost none have questioned the impact it'll have in turn on us. It's always more sanctions are needed rather than hang on a minute this isn't going to be too good for us actually if i can if i can jump in on this one um russia seems to be a lot less squeamish around fracking and fossil fuels than we are yeah. um they produce them to to us to a, an extent that they are a large exporter of those energy sources i mean look at you know Nord Stream, for instance right it, you know um if this hadn't happened, it'd be, it'd be on its way to powering most of Europe. Combine that with the fact that um, most Western European nations are ditching um, effective means of generating energy in in favour of ones that are not efficient, like like uh, off sea off sea wind, uh, for instance. Um, I mean, take take Germany for instance. Germany have been dismantling their nuclear power apparatuses for the last couple of years. Now they basically have none left. Um, and any sanctions on what I believe must be one of the high, one of the region's highest energy producers, will only just come back around. I mean, this is a this is a process that's been going on for a while. 
with us you know deindustrializing and um and diminishing our own ability to generate energy for ourselves and become uh independent on on that front so, you know we've been loading the gun on that for about 20 years now and now we've just sort of you know took aim at our, at our own foot and pulled the trigger with this yeah it should be a big wake-up call shouldn't it because it should make us realize how little sort of leverage we've got in terms of offering sanctions because of the the weakness of our own economy and also of course uh whether or not troops are sent um also i think is quite revealing about the the strength of our own army and it's and it's decline in recent years um colin what have you got any comments on that as well on the on the idea of the sanctions yeah um the people who are tremendously hawkish on sanctions are going to discover one of two things over the next couple of weeks. The first thing is that they're either they're going to be very disappointed that the sanctions are pretty thin and nowhere near the kind of the massive and damaging rhetoric that has been uh, put out over the last couple of weeks from places like Munich and various capital cities in Washington, Berlin and uh, Paris and uh, London. So either it's going to be that, things are going to be much thinner and uh, not quite as devastating as they had hoped in inverted commas, or they're going to discover that the cost of those sanctions is far higher. They seem to assume that they're a boxer who can punch their opponent without being hit back. Yeah. Uh, to give you an example of this, uh, people assume that it's just gas, right? Now, gas itself, natural gas itself would be bad enough. Natural gas is already at record levels. And households in the United Kingdom, and I'm sure in the rest of Europe as well, are straining horribly under the uh, 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 under the cost of this these additional energy charges. Okay, what if gas quadruples in price again? What then? What then for our economy? Because it's not just households; it's also industry as well. Industry is already starting to shut down uh, significant amounts of um, capacity because it's simply become inefficient, uneconomical to use, okay? So that's just gas. At the moment, Russia supplies 50% of German coal, 55% of German gas, and 35% of German oil, okay? It's also things like oil cracks, you know, things like petroleum, benzene, that sort of thing. It's also petrochemicals. Um, it's also metals like titanium, which is crucial for the airline and arms industry. It's also things like um, uh, nickel, which we take a huge amount of. Also, um, um, it, also I, think, I think lithium is produced, not in Russia itself, but in Russia's um, sort of steps, influence sphere, which power we should Exactly. Have, how, exactly. And, yeah. For instance, as well, neon, uh, as an example, is crucial when it comes to making uh, microchip, uh, microchip wafers. I think something like 50% of the world production is produced in Odessa in, in Ukraine. And there's been um, a shortage recently as well of, of the chips. Yeah, all, like all, already a shortage. Okay, so, yeah, you know, it, it, if the sanctions are too tough, Russia has a, a huge number of means to strike back. And guess what? If it gets into this sort of trade war, Russia has $650 billion worth of foreign currency reserves. It has a national wealth fund. It has a... Um, uh, it, it has very low debt. I think it has like the sixth or seventh lowest debt in the world, only 18% of GDP. Russia could pay off the entirety of its sovereign debt and still have a couple of hundred billion dollars left over to protect its currency. Hmm. You know, they, uh, I mean, in the long term, of course, sanctions would tremendously damage Russia. But in the short term, Europe would fall to its knees the first. 
I'm yeah. sorry about the puppy, uh, by the way. <laughs> Excuse me. He's right. not quite trained yet. But I mean, it must like, it isn't like Russia's been like, you know, uh, Russia and the West were buddied up until, you know, two weeks ago. Russia has its own sphere of influence. Um, that is east of, east of, you know, Western Europe and, and the Western world and the, the NATO sphere. Um, it, you know, it, it, it ultimately can trade independently of the West. Yeah, I think we, because of time constraints, we haven't got much longer, unfortunately, but... Um... There's one thing that I would like to go into in kind of a more sort of metapolitical um, analysis of what this means. And it's, um, I think what we're seeing ultimately is the end of the end of history, right? So, I mean, you know, after the, after the, the victory of the West in the Cold War, you know, I think it was uh, Franz Fukushima claiming, you know, this is the end of history. This is, you know, yeah. uh, this is Pax Americana. Liberal democracy will reign supreme now. And the the impotence of the American response to this um, is very telling. And another thing that I find quite interesting is that you know, there was um, I can't remember who it was, but there was a thesis you know, that 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 two nations who have McDonald's franchises will never go to war. Right? The the idea that you know post Cold War uh, liberal American hegemony um, and you know the globalized economy will financially incentivize peace and will stop nations going to war. Um, well, that's kind of dead and buried now, um, yeah. and, and and we we could be seeing depending entirely on what happens in the next few weeks, we could be we could be, we could be seeing the rise of a completely new uh, geopolitical epoch. No, it's true. It's um, it's both an interesting and a pretty scary time to to live through in that sense. We we've talked about this slightly before recording, but I think it is a interesting topic to go into briefly, which is. Um, the, the opinion of, of Russians as to what's going on at the moment. Obviously, it's difficult to measure this. I know that um, Max Seddon, who's been reporting on this for the uh, Financial Times, has um, sort of suggested we can't yet tell just what Russians think about this, but one interesting barometer is on Russian celebrities, and he, he lists uh, a decent number of people whose, whose influence, I think, um, is, is um, in his words, quite high, uh, who have called out the invasion who have said uh sort of quote no to war um and have been pretty frustrated actually with what's happened which might act as a slight indicator what do we think people's view in russia of putin might be as a result of um the invasion and sort of how that might go on after the invasion and in the coming weeks months and possibly even years who knows yeah i think <sighs> It's pretty hard to tell because Russian celebrities, um, Russian celebrities, rather similar to British celebrities, my guess would be, uh, um, have rather more, you know, liberal and progressive views than perhaps the average uh, person does. Yeah. Um, I think, though, that nobody really wants war. And I think especially in a country like Ukraine, um, it probably feels particularly painful for Russia because, like it or not, um, whatever we think about Mr. Uh, President Putin's uh, views on the links between Russia and Ukraine, there is a deep and long link between the two. Um, they are a kind of uh, brother or cousin nations with each other. It would probably feel uh, rather like Northumbria going to war with Scotland, right? It's... Uh, it's going to be an extremely painful uh, process. And, you know, as we said at the start, this is an absolute tragedy. Yeah. Uh, my, you know, my own feeling about this, though, is that it's a bit like the old phrase about going bankrupt. 
you know, you go bankrupt very slowly and then all at once. And this is a tragedy that's been going on since I would say at least 2004 after the Baltic nations acceded to NATO and George W. Bush in his infinite wisdom suggested Ukraine and uh, Georgia move toward joining. Um, we, but we, certainly, which, which did lead to a conflict between Russia and Georgia in around 2008, right? Yeah, exactly. So Saakashvili, the, Mikhail Saakashvili was a Western-educated uh, Georgian who uh, was actually pretty, uh, by all accounts, pretty effective in terms of being an administrator, but he got completely carried away with himself and really thought that there was Western support that there wasn't. And we sold them down the river. And I believe something similar has happened to Ukraine at the moment, where it's been set up to fail. We've made promises that we are entirely unable, and even if we were able, unwilling to keep. Um, They've got very excited at the prospect of things like, you know, visa-free travel to the EU and and Western investment and modernized economy and that sort of thing, none of which I think we can provide Ukraine particularly. Um, And unfortunately, now that the chips are down we have backed right off and and backed right off by necessity with we have i mean sam mentioned earlier on we have no ability to intervene militarily in this conflict putting british troops in ukraine at the moment would lead to exactly the same result as ukrainian troops are leading now we've been fighting for 20 years low intensity counterinsurgency warfare and yep. this has left us painfully unprepared for any kind of high-intensity combined arms warfare of the sort that we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment. Even if we wanted to help, we couldn't. We're, un- we're unable to help militarily. That leaves sanctions. And as we've said at the moment, they can talk as tough as they want on sanctions. But ultimately, they're something that we don't really have much of an ability to enforce at an acceptable cost. No. No, but the, the interesting thing, I think, is that, as you say, while we have backed off from a lot of the promises we made, uh, the, the rhetoric very much suggests that we haven't done so. It suggests that we are still very much in support, that we'll do anything that's necessary. Uh, you see that from, from uh, Macron now, who says that you know, we pretty much won't rule out any form of response. Uh, Boris Johnson has been very gung-ho as well. Um, with with pretty firm rhetoric, which completely clashes to the response we are actually giving, which um, is weak, um, and as you say, sort of purposefully so or uh, needingfully so, because there's there's very little else that we can do and little else that we can offer. Um, but the, the clash there between the action and the rhetoric is, as always, I think, in, in British politics in recent decades, um, not just a, a minor gap, but a, a chasm. Well, I, just to jump in, I'm sorry to kind of steal Sam's thunder here, but Johnson's response to this is exactly as um, forceful and decisive as his action against unlimited migration and his yeah. action to restructure the economy to help the north of England. Yeah. It's, you know, big on bloviation and short on action. And in this case, rightfully so. Uh, Ukraine, I, I mean, you know, Genghis Khan could rise from the dead, I'm sorry to say, and demand tribute from Ukraine as a vassal state. And it would make not one difference to the interests of the or security of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, and painful as that might sound, it's also true. Yes. Um, so it's right that we don't get involved in a fight that we have no interest in, which we cannot win. So perhaps for once, Johnson's kind of um, Johnson's kind of uh, embellishments and uh, grandstanding might stand us in good stead, rather as it did because he's a liberal and a libertine, 
and that made him less likely to continue stringent COVID restrictions for too long. Well, is is any of that for um, reasons of belief or out of necessity? I mean, was the was the end of COVID restrictions because he had a sudden change of heart, or because he was embroiled in a Partygate scandal which uh, completely undermined his authority? And is in this case are not taking in troops a result of him believing that we shouldn't do so, or a result of the fact that we can't do so? They're the important questions, I think. I, I think in like, certainly well, in the first. Does case, any- does anybody know the difference with Boris Johnson? <laughs> well, no, but I think it's an important point to make. I think, you know, the idea that his, his liberty-loving prince, uh, principle, so-called, ended the, the COVID madness is, is untrue. I think that what ended it was um, political necessity rather than uh, his sort of political will. And I think the same argument could, unfortunately, be made in the Ukra- uh, Ukraine crisis. Were we, in as, as a country, in a different position? I can imagine a state in which, because of sort of the the political grandstanding, we were more involved. Um, I, I don't think we should be. I agree with your assessment of of our of our links with Ukraine, um, but I, I'm not sure that Boris Johnson agrees with your uh, assessment of the links. And the, the only thing that's stopping us from going in further is a pretty stark reality that we can't. Hmm. The the world that has been created by the liberal universalists who sprang up like poisonous mushrooms at the end of the Cold War and started dominating Western foreign policy thinking and discourse is collapsing even as we speak. They believed that history had ended, that if countries traded more with each other and cooperated more with each other, it would make war uh, and conflict less likely. They believed that liberal democracies were less likely to go to war and therefore we should export liberal democracy often at the point of a gun but more often um, at the end of uh, extremely well-funded non-governmental organizations and journalists who were friendly to the west all of these things have led us to disaster time after time in iraq in syria in libya and now in ukraine as well and this whole worldview is collapsing and they're responding hysterically to it Boris Johnson's highly involved in this whole way of thinking, yeah. as most of the benches in the House of Parliament are on both sides of the divide. Unfortunately, they're going to thrash around for a while like sharks that have been landed on a game fishing boat, but they are going to find out the truth eventually. Yeah. And uh, sooner may that truth come. I think we'll we'll call it today there, unless you want any a closing remarks, Sam. Uh, no, no just 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 that you know i think um uh it's a it's a brave new world we're possibly entering here um one in which america isn't the you know the, the scrapyard dog anymore um and that will come with you know benefits and negatives and you know we'll just see what happens yeah no absolutely i think it'd be i think it'd be interesting to to catch up on this in a, in a couple of weeks time and to see um the the new pronouncements that have been been made and the the actions that have been taken and perhaps whether we step down further uh, but thank you anyway for everybody listening thank you sam and thank you of course collingwood for joining us today um hope you enjoyed and that you will listen to us again next week cheers <laughs>